You're listening to The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. And this is episode 200. Hello and welcome to The Film File. I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Meekin. And we have been with you, well, actually for more than 200 episodes, <laughs> but uh, if you count the uh, additional extras, the bottle episodes, but officially, and this is canon, we are 200 episodes into this little old thing that we just started, not necessarily on as a whim, but as a, as a love of cinema. Yeah, it's a love of well, a love of cinema and a love of like our general chats whenever we saw each other anyway, where we just waffle about things that we'd seen, things that we'd heard in the like movie industry, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And we just thought, you know what, if we record this, people might want to listen. And strangely enough, people do. There's people out there that love listening, love to wait for the new drops each week. And you know, I've got to know quite a few of the people quite closely, either through colleagues at work who listen and love to hear what our thoughts are, but also some like people within Sheffield who become regular customers at the cinema that work at work at, who basically they love to engage with us. I mean, it, just seeing like people like Lindsay. Lindsay is like a huge fan of the show. Uh, she gets, she always answers the question of the week. She's one of the most mentioned names. Her and Owen always answering. And whenever I see them in the cinema, I always make a beeline over to chat about like what they've been seeing, et cetera, et cetera. And it's building up that kind of relationship because that's when we started the show. I mean, those who watched my uh, revisit <laughs> of episode one on YouTube will know how awkward it was. And we tried not to be we tried not to be as jokey as we are now. We tried not to we tried to make it serious. And I don't think that quite gelled because it, this show has like morphed into what we consider as just barroom banter. We are just talking about things that we love. So know that I started putting the cold opens in of the mistakes, which you were a bit like, uh, oh, I'm not sure about yeah, that yeah. at the start. And you were like, oh, actually, no, it gives us personality. Yeah. And then we started adding this bit in at the beginning where we're talking just about general things that have gone on. And it's become part of the show that you get to know us as people. And so you get to understand our tastes in films at the same time. Because I think it's important that, you know, a, a critic can review as many films as possible. But if you don't know who they are, you don't know whether you can relate to them. And I think that we're very relatable. Well, I think so. And I think we've, we've, found our, we've found our feet with this. We found the structure after a couple of episodes. And then the banter really started to, um, started to become more personal. It became, uh, became about us and, and our love of, of, of cinema and, and film and all things geek. And... You know, it's a big landscape out there. There are a lot of film podcasts. There are probably more film podcasts than anything else. And it's hard to make uh, a, a dent into that world. But we've, we've got a little quiet corner of the universe that we enjoy. And yes, I, yeah. I'm always going on. I'd like to build it up and do more with it. And, you know, um, we, we've now got the radio show version, which no one, no one predicted that right at the beginning. Um, and, and gently and, and with love and with our enthusiasm i hope you know we've, we've carved out a, a place for ourselves uh, a place for us to share our thoughts opinions and uh, little in jokes that we we seed through the episodes that those who've been with us a long time will know whenever we reference something and then start laughing what exactly has set us off laughing because it's always related to something that we've said on an earlier show who'd have thunk it who'd have thunk that we'd get to 200 episodes 200 official episodes like lee said there have been little fillers, little bonus episodes, uh, little bottle episodes, but 
for the ones that have had the proper structure where it's a deep a new deep dive and a few new reviews and the news this is this is the official yeah. episode 200 it's great i'm i'm really proud of what we've done and Lee's healthier this week. Yeah, well, that's made a big difference. I'm, I'm still a bit tired, but yes, it's good to be. And we've done this through thick and thin, to be honest. We both had moments where we've not been well. <clears throat> we've both had those shows where we've not been at our best, but we've always muddled through. We've always got to the end. We've had technical difficulties occasionally, but we've always <laughs> sought to, to, to put the best show possible. And, uh, and I think we've just got better and better of it, uh, better and better at it. To the point where you know we we produce ourselves. It would be great to have a have a team, you know, sorting out interviews, producing the show, doing our socials, and all that sort of thing. But it's it's a mom and pop organization, and we've we've done very well with it. I still like to do the t shirts. I'd still like to get some t shirts out there. Um, as mentioned, if you've got any ideas of what we can feature on a film file t shirt, please let us know, and we'll make some exclusive t shirts available to you very soon based on your ideas so be part of the film file family i mean the, the, the idea that we've had submitted so far is the pinch of salt corner Ooh, like that. see terms like that that we that we've introduced that have, have stuck around my not so fondest memory of any editing or mistakes or sound issues was that one where I had the really bad audio that you only told me literally as we got to five minutes from the end. I went, you sound a bit distant today. And when I listened back, it sounded like I was at the other side of a warehouse whispering in the dark corners. Oh my goodness. And I had to re-record all of my lines for the show again to ADR them in. And it meant I had to listen through what we'd recorded, make notes, and then re-record everything and then cut and paste it all in so that it flowed with what Lee was saying. And the end result, I mean, it took me a long time to do, but we still got the show out on time. I don't think I slept for three days. <laughs> um, and when I listened back to it, it was like, you know what? You can't even tell that that's being added in. I've done a great job. And that it was a horrible week to edit, but it's my proudest achievement that you couldn't tell that there was anything wrong with the audio throughout because I literally re-recorded everything, <laughs> including when like you'd thrown side like curveballs in at me and like set me off on like weird tangents. And I had to remember what that weird tangent was. <laughs> go right, okay. Yeah, so, we uh, we do do the weird tangent. Uh, yeah, it was. Uh, that's that's a, definitely a highlight of um, all of our history. But there have been other episodes where like something's just gone wrong halfway through the audio and I've, I've had to trim around. There's moments where Lee's dropped out for no reason. And so I continue talking and then use some sound clips from previous episodes to put in so that it makes it seem like Lee's still there. <laughs> that I've, I've done. I've, I've learned so much over these 200 episodes. I have learned so much about audio editing because up until I started this show, my knowledge of audio editing, I mean, the first episode basically went out raw. Yes, we just yeah, recorded we'll it around it, the table um, and just put it out there. Yeah. And but it's got slick. It's got more slick. You know, more music cues. You know, a, a structured show. We've not changed the structure of the show. We've we've improved upon it in bits and pieces, and the occasional place we've now figured out how to speed up the recording. But you know, once we found the structure and everything fit like a, fit into place, really, it was it was uh, yeah. it's become our show, and we, we've taken taken ownership of that. Yeah, and over the past year, I mean, it's just over a year since we started the latest addition Is it? to the structure of the show. And that's the question of the week. I love doing the questions of the week. So um, 
this week ties into our deep dive. And that is a film that you saw, which changed your life, introduced you to cinema, introduced you to a, an actor or a, a genre or somebody you went with or somebody you met at the cinema, but something that had an impact on you. And as I said, this works very well into our our deep dive. So Andy, what did we get? Uh, we've had a great bunch of responses. Um, and a lot of them are about like the impact of that film that made you sit up and take notice. We'll start with, uh, <laughs> and I know it's Stephen Young posting under his wife's account again on Spotify because he never logs her out for some reason. So I'm going to just say it's Kate Young who's responded with probably Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings, to be honest. There's so much creativity and all the feels. And yeah, it's a, it's a more recent pick. But boy, that's an impact of a film. Over on Twitter, Sis Astro slash Aqua Girl, A-C-N-H asterisk Star Wars, which is possibly the best Twitter name that I've ever seen <laughs> in my life. And you'd think with that, with having Star Wars within the name that they've got on Twitter, they'd have gone for Star Wars. But no, it's The Sound of Music with family. Wow. I wanted to be Julie Andrews. I think anything that you watch at a really young age with your family is one that really opens your eyes to cinema. Dennis Obi, Jurassic Park, back in the cinemas, was a movie experience like nothing else. What other had that 1977 feeling with Star Wars? This was mine. Some years later, I saw Forrest Gump and it changed completely my view on how movies could also be made. But yeah, Jurassic Park, that first Jurassic Park film still stands up today. Yes, it does. Absolutely. Still look amazing. I remember the build up to it. Yeah. And, and, and <laughs> being awed, people absolutely in awe in the cinema when you see that first shot and Spielberg holds it back to see what Alan Grant's seeing and what the audience are seeing together of that Brontosaurus. And it is, it is just phenomenal. It's, it's a, it's a, an incredible moment in cinema history. Apple Park Films, who uh, was on. Yeah, we love show. Apple Park Films. Hi guys. When we were talking about uh, the Maya that Adam was make Adam Nelson was making uh, great film. Apple Park Films responded with Jaws movies and Jurassic Park Cinema. Two films from the same director that both made a dent on what you expect from cinema. I mean, Jaws basically set the template for the summer blockbuster, and Jurassic Park refined it, let's be honest. And The Real Princess just posted a gif of Matilda. The, the Danny DeVito directed one. Yes, not that terrible remake. Not that terrible remake. So uh, before we move over to the Mastodon and Facebook responses, uh, Lee's had a few yes, uh, sent to him. Uh, Hans Horn, who is the director of the great thriller, if you get a chance to see it, Adrift, we're working together on a project. And the first film that he remembered that blew him away, uh, and it was the fantasy element that fascinated him, was the 1940 version of Thief of Baghdad, directed by Michael Powell. I saw this, I've only ever seen it on television, and yes, it is a beautiful piece of work. And yes, the, the special effects by comparison today are, are primitive, but it still has an incredible, incredible sense of wonder. Uh, um, and the great Conrad Veidt and Sabu in it are, are marvellous. A, a brilliant film. Thanks for that, Hans. That's a great choice. I, I'm the same as you. I've only ever seen it on TV, but it was one that it used to come on during the either the summer yeah. holidays or the Christmas holidays on TV. And it'd be one that I'd scour through the Radio Times and circle because I needed to watch that again every time that it popped up. All of those kind of like mythical storytelling fantasy settings. Uh, you know, it's, it's how I got involved yeah. with like lo me love of Harryhausen and stuff. But anything to do with those kind of Arabian Nights kind of exploits, I was all over. 
I, I needed to watch them all. And that was a, it, it was a charming entry. It was a great entry. What else have we got? So over on Mastodon, Christian Mutig suggested, again, it's Jurassic Park. I can even tell you what scene. And it's when they arrive at Jurassic Park, he lifts his glasses and sees the yep. um, Brontosaurus. Just mentioned it. Brilliant. Oh, it's just a jaw-dropping moment. So that's the moment of the film that you really sit up and go, oh, wow. Uh, Jacob Nielsen, can't remember a time when I didn't love cinema. I can remember the first time I saw, the first film I saw at the cinema was Dumbo. The film that had the largest impact on me was probably, probably Lawrence of Arabia in Imperial Bio, which is the largest cinema in Denmark at 1990s re-release. I think a lot of us, our early days at cinema were probably reruns yes. of Disney cartoons because every every holidays, your local three-screen flea pit cinema would just screen early morning shows of like Peter Pan, Dumbo, Snow White, Sleeping Beauty, whatever. And that's how a lot of us were taken as kids to entertain us. And it still happens today. I mean, the, the more modern, older kids' films a show on Saturday and Sunday mornings at cinemas like around the world as little like cheaper tickets, matinee performances to take the kids along for their first experience. Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, Disney always re-released all of their films uh, during the half-term holidays and the summer holidays. And, and for many of us, that was our introduction to cinema and mine too. I mean, the one that I remember probably as one of my first emotional, impactful films was, was Disney's Bambi. But for me... 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea was the moment I think I, I fell in love with cinema because I was I was a gasp. I, I remember it so well. I remember which cinema it was. I remember going with my mum and it was out of town. So it, from where we lived, it was a couple of bus rides, but my mum knew how important it was for me to, to mm -hmm. watch 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I think it was a double bill as well with something like Snow White. I remember seeing 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea at the cinema as well on, on its reissue. I love that film. One of these days, we will deep dive 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea because I've got a whale of a tale to tell you, lads. <sighs> a whale of a tale or two. <laughs> you know what? It still stands up as well. It still stands up. Salty Red Popcorn. Hi there, Salty. How are you doing? Probably a re-release of The Jungle Book. The first big Disney movie I recall seeing at the cinema, and I was won over by the Mickey's Christmas Carol short that was before the feature. Oh, yeah. Although I have a vague memory of joining in with the unrestrained wailing of young viewers who are all traumatized in the cinema by E.T., and yeah, E.T. is a firm, fond memory of mine from my childhood, watching that on the big screen and just being blown away. We've spoken about it before, that yeah. the John Williams score in particular is that film. I can't hear that score start. And I know that one of our other listeners out there feels exactly the same way because I almost set her off crying the other day when I saw her. Um, as soon as you hear that, you feel the tears start to well up. What great filmmaking. Setima. Over on Mastodon, Peer Allen's Dunderklumpen from 1974, which they must have seen on TV when they were very young. Combination of live action and animation wow. was and still is magical. And the music by the great Toots Thielmans, what else does a kid need? Awesome. I don't know that film, but I, the, I, I've got so many memories of animated films like Bedknobs and Broomsticks and, and Mary Poppins where you mix live action and an animation. And I, I was always won over. There was a TV movie of Jack and the Beanstalk, which was uh, which had Gene Kelly in it, which was yeah. part animated. Yeah. And I, I think it was a TV movie. I don't know if it was a cinema movie, but I remember it so clearly. I loved anything like that, but it, it's brilliant. I, I, I was a, a, such a sucker for live action and animation meeting. Jack of the Beanstalk won the 1967 Emmy Award for Outstanding Children's Programme. Was a TV movie. Yeah. 
Hanna-Barbera did the animation for it. See, we're, we're full of trivia. Yeah. We're full of trivia on this show. Rollo Treadway on Mastodon. I'm going to cheat and say two films, but bear with me because there's a good reason why I'm picking two. The first is King Kong's, the 1933 original. Wow. And the second is Citizen Kane. Between them, they taught me a great deal about how cinema works and how it evolved. And they also made me interested in watching classic films, which is not always an obvious thing to do when you're a youngster. In fact, to a significant extent, they made me interested in watching films more generally, insofar as they taught me about films meaning more than just light entertainment. And the reason I picked them both was because I saw them one after the other on a Saturday afternoon double bill on BBC Two in the early 90s. That afternoon genuinely changed my life. I love that answer because it goes into so much detail about why there's yeah. two films and what they meant and how you know they are two films that showcased quite early on what the power of cinema could be. And mentioning BBC Two, a lot of my early film watching was the double bill matinee yes. that BBC used to run every weekend, usually on a Sunday afternoon. You'd tune in. That's where I got, I mean, Sunday afternoon tends to have a musical followed by another classic film. Yeah. And so me and my mum used to watch the double bills on the Sundays, which is why I've got a love of things like My Fair Lady, etc. because I've watched them over and over again. Uh, Chess Soul, Agea, The Wrath of God, with my family before my 11th birthday, kind of unforgettable and is still an incredible watch. At that time, I saw it many times, but only in French, my native language, and on VHS. And rounding off the responses from our socials over to Facebook, where our regular contributors, Lindsay and Owen. So Lindsay Story, you know my massive love of horror. So watching Hammer and Amicus films at a young age yeah. had a massive impact on my film choices. Friday nights on ITV was the, was yes. the Hammer, Hammer films. Which, as I got slightly older, I was allowed to stay up and watch. Uh, and I saw boobs for the first time because of that. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, I think we all, I think we all glimpsed boobage uh, because of the Hammer films at a at an age that uh, Mummy probably didn't realise that there was going to be boobage yes. popping up. It was a Hammer film, of course. There was cleavage and boobage. Lost Boys was another one that cemented my love of horror. I'm well into the 100s in viewing when watching this film, but the film that's had the most impact on me was Train Spotting. Okay. That film got up and gave me a humongous slap right across my face. I was 16 and saw it at the cinema, so too young, but got in anyway. And it made me want to watch a whole new range of films. I was obsessed with this film for years and still watch it on a regular basis. And I saw Lindsay this week and she mentioned this one. And I said, you have to keep in the fact that you were underage going into a cinema because you are saying that to a manager of a cinema who is now very disappointed in you. <laughs> hey, I, I, remember, I remember breaking that rule with Enter the Dragon and the remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the Donald Sutherland version. I don't think I ever broke the rule. I was a good boy. No, I wasn't. I never went to see films that I wasn't old enough for, which, uh, I don't know, I think I maybe missed out on that opportunity. I was just too nervous to do oh, it. Oh, yeah, you lived in was, fear I, of, being, of being checked. Someone wanted to look at your passport or your driving license or, <laughs> you know, whether you're shaved. <laughs> <laughs> I watched Train Spotting when it came out, but I was now living in Sheffield, and I was the age of which those characters are. And I had friends who... I could see reflected on screen in Train Spotting in each of the characters there. I knew people like that. I knew people who were heavily into drugs. Yeah. I knocked about with a few of them. I didn't go down that route myself, but I could see so much of the environment around me reflected. And as a result, I have so much connection with Train Spotting. Even when T2, Train Spotting 2 came out, because those characters had grown with me, I could again reflect at where they were in their life and looking back at their past. And as a double bill, those films are so close to home 
that I can't help but be charmed for them. Train spotting was an impact when it came out. Let's, let's be honest, the publicity before it came out with the, the posters on bus stands yeah. of the characters, you know, everything, it was everywhere. The music was in your face everywhere that you went. You couldn't avoid it. Was it. Zeitgeist. it was a zeitgeist. It was a generational film. It was a movement of a film. Yeah. And a lot of films around the time followed and tried to emulate that and didn't quite hit the mark the same way. Train spotting was a great choice. And Owen Cooper, I saw Pan's Labyrinth at a young age and it made wow. me want to see more foreign films. And not only is it visually amazing, but the story is just as good too. Clerks is another one because of the re- because of the reasons how and why it was made, which we spoke about uh, when we did the deep dive into it. And Spider-Man is also another, as I believe this to be my generation's Superman, being able to see a man swing through New York. And I'm yet, with you. I can see that completely. You know, for, for me and Lee, Superman is the ultimate it is. superhero movie because we were young, we saw that, and we wowed by it. But yeah, a different generation, Spider-Man is the character that has caught that imagination in the same Great way. answers. Uh, there's a, a film that ties in myself, the, the late Keith Williams scriptwriter, a dear friend, and Russell Mackay, uh, and that's that we all loved Jason and the Argonauts and the impact that it had on each and every one of us and, and that when we, we spoke, there was there was always be some kind of reference. I mean, uh, um, Russell and Keith's film Talos the Mummy is Talos named after mm. the giant statue that comes to life. And I know how important it is to them that it was a, a film that changed our lives. It was just a sense of wonder when it and you would wait for it to be announced in sort of the Christmas TV times just so you'd know. This was pre-video recording. As a kid, you would sit there and wait for it. Brilliant. That was that was utterly. I think that made me fall in love with cinema and what cinema could do. Um, and then finally, we've got one, um, uh, Joe Elliott, who's an up-and-coming um, rock star <laughs> from uh, the band Def Leppard, got in touch to say um, he couldn't find one film that changed his life. But he said, this is a tough ask. My first ever movie was The Jungle Book, and, and I still love it to this day. And then after that, uh, in no specific order, and I'm not going to give you the entire list because these are the films that changed his life. Jaws, Close Encounters, Rocky Horror Picture Show, The Shining, uh, The Wanderers, The Fly Remake, Alien, Caddyshack Trading Places, most of the Bond films, uh, The Full Monty, um, Lost Horizon, which is a film that we've talked about as a deep dive that uh, (laughs) both he and I share love for, even though it's a terrible movie. So, um, yeah, great, great list, Joe. And I wish I could read them all out because it is a fantastic list and I agree with so many of them. And as he says, as you can see, I like to be entertained. Yes, you do, sir. With that list of films, I'm convinced that me and Joe would get on like a house on fire. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for that list. All of those films are quite high, even Lost Horizon, which when we covered it on the deep dive, I said that like I strangely enjoyed it. And yeah. I don't know why. <laughs> Me too. As you know, I, I love I've had the soundtrack album. In fact, I, I I sent the soundtrack album over to Joe because he was he said out of everybody he knew would have it, it had to be me. And I've got got so much love for that soundtrack album, and it is a it is a, a desire every now and then to, to chuck it on and have a sing along with it. Um, thank you to everybody who's contributed to our films that changed your life and we uh we're going to build up to our deep dive which is going to feature one of the films that changed many of your lives and and changed cinema our our deep dive will be covering the one which changed my life the most but i do want to mention like one which i've got a fond memory of going to see which is and that's terminator 2 judgment okay it was the hype the build-up to that film coming out me and my mates jim steve parsey phil and pewie 
all used to go to the cinema quite frequently to watch whatever we could. I was 18 at the time. We got to our local haunt, the UCI cinemas just outside Liverpool. It was 1991. We queued up to be the first in line. And we were there first because the first 50 people would get a free T-shirt. And we got through the door. We got our free T-shirts to watch Terminator 2 which then resulted in me kicking off at the poor cinema workout, which I still feel really bad for. I still really have to apologize if that cinema worker's out there and, <laughs> you know, he's listening to the show. Genuinely take this as a heartfelt apology because I've been on your shoes now. You'd just been sent a box of merchandise from the distributor. You didn't know that there were kids-sized T-shirts for a 15-rated film. That wasn't your, pro your fault, but I didn't know that at the time. So... If you can remember the guy with the long black <laughs> trench coat kicking off uh, with long hair down his back, shouting about like, what kind of moron gives you a child's T-shirt for a 15 rated film? Sorry, I do really appreciate that T-shirt. <laughs> I think I've still got it somewhere. But it, it was a fun memory because that was one of those films that me and my mates all came out at the end just being blown away and just couldn't stop talking about it for weeks. We loved it. Terminator 2 Judgment Day when I was 18 was one of those, it's the people that you went to see it with moments that made all the difference. So what question do we have for you this week? And hopefully we've got some interesting answers because this week I want you to name either a very low budget film or a straight to video film. You know, we're not looking high class here that you absolutely adore, that you think is a perfect example of low budget filmmaking. A Z movie. A Charles Band movie, a Roger Corman film. We're not talking high class, but that doesn't matter. But you love it for the fact that it is a low-budget movie. It might be trash. No one's judging. You just tell us what that film is. And you can do so by... Head over to the social media channels, Facebook, Twitter, Mastodon, Blue Sky. Search for Film File UK. We're on there. Get us followed. Answer the question over there. Or... Contact us directly. Podcast at filmfile.uk is the email address to send your answers over to. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to get your opinions and add more films onto the list of films that I want to look see. Look forward to those, but let's look forward to today's show. What have we got for you? Well, we have our deep dive into a film that changed Andy and I and changed cinema forever. We have reviews of... We both got chance to sit in a darkened screen this week and watch Madam Web. Stick around for our response on that one. <laughs> I've also seen Bob Marley's One Love, which released at cinemas this week. And I've also checked out a documentary that landed on BBC as part of the Storyville. And it's one of the Oscar-nominated documentaries, which is why I'm bringing it to the show this week. And that's The Eternal Memory. But before that, we've got the news and we've got the box office. So, Madam Webb opened this week uh, in the UK and the US. Is it swinging its way to the top of the charts? Or has it been buried alongside so many of the Sony Spider-Verse movies other than Into the Spider-Verse? Andy, what's the box office looking like? So in the US this weekend, Bob Marley opened at the top spot, 27.7 million. It's taken its first few days. Madam Web in second place with 15.2 million. Argyle, third place, 4.7 million. Migration holding into the top five, 3.8 million to take fourth place. And once again, The Chosen Season 4 makes it into the top five, this time episodes four, five and six, hitting the fifth place with 3.4 million. Here in the UK, Bob Marley won love at the top spots, taking 4.2 million, including the two days previews from Wednesday and Thursday. It's now up to 6.9 million in the UK. Migration in second place with 2.8 million. Madam Web takes third place 
1.3 million. Argyle in fourth place, another 544,000 added to its total. And Wonka still holding a top five slot with 424,000. Madam Web's worldwide opening is 51 million. Not a great opening. However, the film only cost 80 million to make. So it is possible that it might actually break even at some point. However, it's all going to be dependent on word of mouth, and I don't think word of mouth on this film is going to be very strong. Bob Marley's One Love, when it got announced, it, it seemed like one of those films that you had to be of a certain generation to want to go and see it, basically our age and above. And I wasn't expecting to get the wide array of ages of people coming to see it, which I think showcases that Marley's legacy really does live on through the generations. We've had people bringing their families. You've had young kids getting taken in by the parents. You've had the older generation. You've had people like 80 and above who come to see it. Every age range has been factored into this. It's been amazing. It's been a great buzz of seeing such a wide, diverse array of people all flocking to see one film. Uh, which I'll talk about my opinions of later in the show. But what a great example of how you don't need to be a huge blockbuster in order to make an impact on the audience. So let's move into the main news territory. And I just want to start off by uh, one bit which made me chuckle this week is um, Amazon Prime are facing a class action lawsuit due to their introduction of adverts. Really? Well, I, I noticed that this week as I sat down to watch uh, a movie. Uh, and yes, I'd, I'd forgotten that the introduction of adverts had started. We know that at back end of last year, they announced the plans to incorporate adverts into a prime video, which other services like Netflix, Disney Plus and others have done. But the other services have done it with multiple tiers where you, if you're already subscribing at the normal tier, you don't get the ads, but you can take a cheaper tier to get it with ads. Whereas Prime have done something different and gone, well, if you're on the if you're on this tier, you're automatically getting ads, but you can pay us more to get rid of them, which is being seen as being a bit of a breach of contract, possibly, uh, particularly for people who have paid a year in advance. I mean, I pay annually right. because you get a better discount on it, which means that for half of my year's contract, I'm getting adverts that I didn't pay for. Yeah. And legal teams in the US who've made this exact claim is that subscribers who signed up before they announced that they're going to be adding adverts, there's a potential breach of contract in there because the terms of the contract and the insistence that you have to pay more in order to get back to what you paid for is a, a bit too dubious. It's going to be interesting to see how this goes. Clash action lawsuits can go either way, but the proposed class action is seeking at least five million US dollars at a court order barring Amazon from engaging in further deceptive conduct on behalf of users who subscribed to Prime prior to December the 28th last it, year. It's interesting. I mean, Amazon are spending more on movies, uh, but it's not their prime industry. We, we talked about this with Apple a couple of weeks ago. I yeah. wonder if they will back down on this uh, and back down and go back to some other two-tier method of, of doing it. And uh, I, I think they've made a, a terrible, terrible mistake and uh, could come back to bite them in the courts. Uh, on to the good news. And it's good news that we kind of, like, in amongst all the rumouring and all the speculation, we had more or less narrowed down four names for the big casting of the Fantastic Four. And we said that we could see each of these in the roles, and these were our firm favourites. And this week, the Fantastic Four cast is officially revealed. Pedro Pascal playing Reed Richards, Mr. Fantastic. Vanessa Kirby playing Sue Storm, Invisible Woman. Joseph Quinn playing Johnny Storm, The Human Torch. And... Eben Moss Bacharach as Ben Grimm, the thing, even before there was speculation on Eben Moss Bacharach being announced. We'd spoken on the back of our love of the bear 
of how he would make a great Ben Grimm. So I'd like to say that we called this <laughs> even before it was. <laughs> what a fantastic way to release it as well. They released it on Valentine's Day with a piece of artwork by comic artist Phil Notto. And boy, it was it was a joy. It sent the Twitterverse and gossip amongst film fans and film critics and toxic fans alight, offering the suggestion that this is potentially set in the 1960s. Um, that was kind of the vibe from the uh, from the drawing, especially with the Marvel logo written in a way that represents the old. I think it's the old World's Fair logo on it. But uh, it's, it's a beautiful piece of art. So you've got Pedro Pascal as Andy said as Reed Richards, Vanessa Kirby as Sue Storm, and Joseph Quinn, who seems to have got a lot of dig for playing Johnny Storm. And I and I think he was great in Stranger Things and so much charm. I think a lot of people are confusing the character he played in Stranger Things, who had long hair, with the actor who, you know, can cut his hair and has done <laughs> yes. and looks pretty good in images when he's got short hair as a Johnny Storm. This is the thing. People just go by what they've seen that person in and don't actually think, oh, well, they can dye the hair, maybe. Yeah. They can cut it short. He's got the right attitude. He's got the youth. He's got the energy. I think he's got great. the charm. Absolutely got the charm. He yeah. burnt up the screen in Stranger Things and uh, and he's a, a British actor as well. And British actors always seem to be able to do those things about playing different characters very, very well. Because you know what? That's why they're called actors. The drawing also featured, uh, going back to the cartoon, Herbie the Robot. And um, I am just super, super excited. I love the retro vibe at play in that teaser poster uh, and the film. Hopefully, I, I like the idea of it being set in the 1960s during the space race because uh, how does it then shift to the present day well you know we already know that the quantum realm could could be used as a way to freeze them in time and bring them out maybe the negative zone will be the pathway through to the present day we don't know the story details at this point in time but there's enough clues in there to drop hints as to what to expect one of my colleagues at work this week did make an interesting point about John, like being set in the 60s, like Johnny Storm being like the rebellious youth that he is. It'd be interesting when it comes to the present day, because everything that he'd be rebelling about would be like, oh, no, that's fine. Yeah. yeah. Because it'd be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Black people should have more power. Yeah, yeah. Good. Yeah. Well done. Oh, <laughs> is that not is that is that not rebellious anymore? <laughs> oh, people should be allowed to love whoever they want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Good. What? So he's not going to be a rebel when he gets to the present day because everything that they rebelled against, like the establishment in the 60s, is now considered to be the correct way of thinking. <laughs> I, I can't wait. This yeah. is the foundation of of, uh, of Marvel, their foremost pivotal set of characters. We've looked forward to, to their arrival at Marvel Studios. Matt Shankman, who uh, directed WandaVision, uh, directed the pilot episode to Monarch. Yeah. And so far, the delivery date is the 25th of July, 2025. And we will keep you posted on all things Fantastic Four. Yeah, Fantastic Four opening on July the 25th, 2025. That was the original slot for Thunderbolts, which Thunderbolts has now moved earlier to May the 2nd, 2025. So that's our double bill for the summer next year. I cannot wait for Fantastic Four. Absolutely cannot wait. Fantastic Four, I've said before, they were my first love of Marvel Comics. It was the first Marvel comic ever bought for me, and it's the ones that I've stuck with ever since. And this cast is just perfect. Sticking with Marvel, now there's been recent rumours that Mayor Shah Ali will be exiting the Blade film because of the lack of progress on it. This has all been shot down this week from the Insnider, who's reported that all of those rumours are totally false. 
and the script for the film is finally being rounded into shape, with Ali being comfortable moving forward on it. However, the report did also add that the film, which is currently slated for November the 7th, 2025, probably won't make that release date. It will probably slip into early 2026. We know that the film's undergone multiple rewrites, with the direction of Marvel being reconsidered at this point in time in light of more recent events and performance of films. It's expected now that the new Blade will still aim for that R rating, but they'll be making it for under $100 million. And I think it's right. I, think, I don't think a Blade movie needs to no. be over $100 million. I think that that's the tightness that you need for that kind of film. Still excited for it. More news on it when we get confirmations. But at the moment, anyone who's telling you that it's been cancelled or Mayor Shah Ali has moved on, it's nonsense. We just mentioned Joseph Quinn confirmed for the part of Johnny Storm in The Fantastic Four. Before that, he'll start in a new horror thriller called Relapse, which marks the directorial debut of... At one point, one of my favourite authors until I read his last book, uh, Brett Easton Ellis, <laughs> Lesson Zero uh, was his first book, which I thought was had the same kind of impact on me as the, uh, a film that changed your life. But um, his last book, not so much. Uh, described as an elevated horror, also scripted by Ellis, it'll feature Quinn playing a young man named Matt Cullen, whose privileged life is shattered when he's a witness to a horrendous death at a wild party. It sounds very Easton Ellis. It'd be interesting to see how Easton Ellis approaches things as a director, uh, as opposed to just a writer. Yeah. Could be good, but like you say, his last book wasn't that good. Wasn't. Um, so ho hopefully that was just a blip on an otherwise unblemished record. I mean, this guy gave us American, American Psycho. Psycho. Yeah. He gave us The Rules of Attraction. It's a great film, by the way. Yeah. There's one book that I don't think has been adapted to screen enough, and that's uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula. Really? Not you're going to tell me now <laughs> they're going to do another version uh, of Dracula. Luke Besson is adapting Bram Stoker's Dracula for his Europa Corp label. And current talks are being made with actors Christoph Waltz and Caleb Landry-Jones to star within the film. So um, Luke Besson's out of uh, director prison then for letting a whole studio go bankrupt. Yes, he's, uh, he's still being allowed to make films. Uh, the synopsis for the film reads as a telling of the story of the 15th century prince Vladimir, who cursed God following the death of his beloved wife and is turned into a vampire. Later in 19th century London, he discovers his wife's doppelganger and dooms himself by pursuing her. Landry Jones previously worked with Besson on Dogman, which premiered in Venice last year, but ultimately scored very mixed reviews. And Besson has been cleared in France of all charges in the rape case, which involved the Belgian-Dutch actress Sand Van Roy but he reportedly no longer has an operational role within the Eurocorp label. Is there space for another adaptation of Dracula? And do we want Luke Besson to touch it? I'm not sure. Mm. Besson is a, a very stylized director, and I think we've already had a very stylized Dracula film, which we covered as a deep dive last year, yeah. when Francis Ford Coppola delivered his very stylized version. I'll keep an open mind, but it doesn't sound like he's going to be doing anything particularly new with Will it. Smith following up from his much underseen emancipation is adding a new action thriller to his uh, list of projects he's now attached to star in Sugar Bandits this is a film that's been in development at Universal for a few years now Joe Carnahan was rumored to direct back in 2013 but he's nowhere on the list Chuck Hogan who worked on the town and the strain tv series which was pretty good I enjoyed that is adapting and the story will focus on an Iraq war veteran, Neil Maven, to be played by Smith, who returns from the conflict with little hope of a good job or a satisfying future, but reteams with a group of fellow vets to target an ill-gotten gains of the Boston drug trade. 
putting them firmly in the crosshairs of those criminal types. Before that, uh, Smith has been uh, is attached to Bad Boys 4 and apparently will be taking part in the I Am Legend sequel, which has Michael B. Jordan co-starring. You might remember a film that Lee was championing before it came out saying it looked good, and I thought it Ooh, looked yes. dreadful. I had to eat my hat when we talked about it on the show because it turned out it was an amazing, amazing Gerard Butler film. I remember so well watching the the uh, <laughs> watching the trailer with you and you went, oh, that looks rubbish. And I went, no, it looks great. Yeah, there's going to be a sequel. There's been talking about a sequel for some time and it starts shooting this year under the title of Greenland Migration which will see Butler reuniting with director of the first one, Rick Roman Well, and the first film's writer, Chris Sparling. So all the key team are still there. And Marina Baccarin is also going to be returning as his co-star. The first film, just complete, I mean, like I say, the trailer, it just looked like generic trash. But that film was so much more than what that trailer suggested. Yeah. And I cannot wait for this sequel. The first film showed how a major comet disaster was threatening to destroy the planet. And it was basically following Gerard Butler's character, John Garrity, who is trying to get his family to safety uh, via the flights that are taking them to the safe houses underground in Greenland. And it finished with that film with them opening the doors and looking out on the new world that is left behind after the comet's devastation. Where it's going to pick up, how it's going to move ahead. I'm very intrigued. I'm interested because what made that film was it felt almost Spielbergian yeah, in the fact you were focusing on the family drama within this crisis. It was doing similar to what Spielberg had did with so many of his films, such as War of the Worlds, when the focus was more on Tom Cruise trying to protect his family while decimations going on around them. I just couldn't help but just be won by that film. So sometimes don't take a trailer at face value. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I can only eat so many hats. Do you know who never stops working? Who's <laughs> probably got about 50 films in some level of production, and that's Ridley Scott. He's now 110. I didn't know if you know that about Ridley Scott. And he's still making <laughs> movies. Uh, Napoleon uh, is ready to hit Apple TV, if you didn't catch it at the cinema. And with the success of Bob Marley, One Love, following this week, it looks like Paramount, long gestating Bee Gees by is moving a little more quickly because it seems that Ridley Scott is interested in tackling that as one of his next films. I wouldn't say his next next film because, he's, as he said, he's got half a dozen in development right now, uh, including the sequel to Gladiator, which is due very soon. Paramount have very quickly got the script from John Logan, who wrote Skyfall and The Last Samurai, for this BG's film in front of Scott, trying to work out how to get the director involved in it. And it's looking very likely that he's going to go for it. Uh, for those who don't know who the Bee Gees are, I mean, what rock are you living under? <laughs> Barry Robin and Maurice Gibb, who started performing in the 50s, but hit the big time during the 70s when they wrote the songs for Saturday Night Fever. And they are still one of the biggest selling groups of all time. Songs such as Staying Alive, Tragedy, How Deep Is Your Love, To Love Somebody, Jive Talking, Night Fever. Man. It's just iconic music. Biopics is the thing at the moment. This one's been gestating for a long time, but because of the popularity of more recent biopics, like you say, Bob Marley's One Love in particular, is going to greenlight a lot of these projects. We're going to see this going into development pretty soon. And talking of long gestation periods, for films, uh, this one seems to be taking forever. I remember reading a script way back in the early 2000s, Master of the Universe. It looks like it's now mm -hmm. found a director, and that is the very wonderful Travis Knight. 
Travis Knight, who he comes from Leica Studios, he's the Leica Studio chief and film director. He's responsible for some of my favourite films of recent years. This news has been broken this week, saying the deal's still not closed for Knight to be directing the long gestating project for Master of the Universe, and other elements of the project are still all coming together. But getting the Kubo and Two Strings and Bumblebee director is very much the top choice for the studio. Still the best out of all the Transformer movies was uh, Bumblebee. Yes. Chris Butler is currently rewriting the script from the initial draft that was written by David Callahan and Aaron and Adam Nee. And in addition, Amazon MGM Studios is in final negotiations for the rights to the project with Mattel's Robbie Brenner and escape artists Todd Black and Jason Blumenthal set to produce. It's going to be based upon the toy line and the animated series He-Man and the Masters of the Universe unfolding on the planet of Eternia, a land of magic and technology. Yeah, Kevin Smith's Masters of the Universe revelation is, is really good. I'm enjoying it. Yeah, it's it's a solid new take upon the upon the franchise. I'm excited for this, especially now that Travis Knight is potentially going to be attached because he just, as he showed with Bumblebee, he always brings heart and depth to his characters. He always makes it an almost family-like structure with characters that you genuinely care for. Can't wait. Uh, just got a couple of quick bits of news. So the X-Men 97 trailer landed this week. It did, and it was a lot of fun. The series is due to land on Disney Plus on March the 20th. Season two is already in development and it looks like it's just going to pick up where that original series left off with the very similar animated style, including the frame rate doesn't look perfect. So much charm and so much fun. Only Murders of the Building has scored Molly Shannon to join the cast in a recurring role for the fourth season. And we've also got confirmation that Meryl Streep is going to reprise her role from the third season going through into the fourth season. And filmmaker Jordan Peele, his Monkey Paw Productions has updated his official site to confirm that his untitled next film is definitely set for the 2025 release. We don't know what it's going to be, but we've been waiting for Jordan Peele to get back behind the camera since Nope came out. And you know I wasn't that that keen. I thought it was it was okay, but I didn't completely get it as much as I got Get Out and Us. Yeah. Us in particular is the pinnacle for me uh, out of his trilogy so far. But I'm always going to be interested to see what he makes because he's one of those filmmakers that has a passion for film. And whenever he's spoken about his love of like films, he's like us when we do our deep dives. He will express what it is that inspires him on all the films that he's watched through his life. Even on his comedy show with Key and Peele, they did so many film references that I will always be interested to see what he delivers as a filmmaker. So this week we had uh, the Super Bowl. And of course, uh, the Super Bowl is an optimum time for trailer drops. And we've got quite a few good-looking trailer drops. I'm going to kick off with Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. The first trailer that we had for this a couple of months ago was enough to whet our appetites, but now we get an idea of what the story's going to be. And it looks like there's, while all the humans have kind of devolved, there's now a young girl who seems to be more intelligent. The the plague that affected humanity's mental facilities looks like it's coming to an end. And this girl needs to be protected by one group of apes. And this is starting to look more and more like it's getting close to the start of the original Planet of the Apes because we are in that world setting where the apes have full control. And it's looking very much like the old Planet of the Apes. Yeah. It's looking like the societies and the cultures that have sprung up. Oh, this trailer was amazing. This was the highlight of the trailers. I mean, there's another one that we were expecting to enjoy anyway, but this was the one that really made me sit up and go, that's top of my list. Uh, the one which we were all expecting to enjoy anyway. We've been waiting for it for ages. Godzilla. Deadpool. Deadpool oh. I thought you were going to say Godzilla X. <laughs> Kong, the new empire. 
I mean, Godzilla X Kong. I love the fact that they're leaning heavily into the bonkers natures of it. Now. Is it, you know, Godzilla X Kong or is it Godzilla Times Kong? I don't know. You're just going to go I, to the net, know, book but... your tickets by going, can I see the new Godzilla King Kong movie, aren't you? Yes. It's just a monster smash spectacle now. Um, it looks like it, most of the humanity aspect has been stripped out of it. And it's now just giant monster beats giant monster <laughs> while other giant monsters beat other giant monsters. And you know what? I'm down with that because if I want a serious Godzilla film, I'll rely now on the Japanese output because Godzilla minus one was a fantastic serious take on Godzilla. For the US ones, let's lean into the screen nonsense, bonkers heavy. Uh, but Deadpool 3, that trailer made me chuckle. Yes. That trailer really did make me chuckle. What made me chuckle the most? And in the fourth wall breaking or the little side gags, I've kind of been mugged like for attention in the previous two films. It was always like knowingly winking at the camera and like, oh, this is funny. This is funny. Laugh along. But there's a line in this trailer that was just played so subtly that it was the funniest that they've ever done. And that's the, I think you soiled yourself when you were unconscious. I wasn't unconscious. Anyway, why have you got me here? And it was the <laughs> nonchalance at which he just says it. And that just set me off. The TVA, as had been previously rumoured, the TVA have now captured Deadpool and are sending him on a mission to fix things, which is maybe not the best of ideas, which has given them an excuse to delve into the Fox universe. And it looks so much fun. A couple of other worthwhile mentions was the trailer for Wicked, which stars Cynthia Erivo and Aria Grande, along with uh, Jeff Goldblum. Yeah, we didn't see a lot in that trailer. Um, as a fan of the musical, and I've seen the musical a few times. I think it looks great, but I know there's a huge negative backlash online with people saying it. the, the singing doesn't seem good. You don't even get much singing in there. <laughs> there's not a lot of singing. Oh, what's that weird wail that she does at the end? That's her battle cry. Anyone who's seen the musical knows that the witches all have their own unique battle cry. What are you talking about? Anyway, I, I'm still on board with this, but I'm a huge fan of the musical, and I think that I think the casting's right. I know that there has been some toxic backlash saying wokeism because they've inserted a person of colour in the role as the Green Witch. Yeah. <laughs> Who are they supposed to cast? The Jolly Green Giant? <laughs> Grow up, people. I'm excited. I can get the people who haven't been caught by it, who've never watched the musical, because I don't think that trailer sells it well to your general audience that needs a better trailer. We also got uh, a bit of 90s nostalgia, a never-ending list of new sequels. Now we have Twisters, the sequel that you maybe never knew you wanted and probably didn't. It mm. came a bit of a surprise because it, it looks okay, but um, good cast in Daisy Edgar-Jones and Glenn Powell. Keenan Schick is in there, who I've always got time for. Anthony Ramos is in there. Great cast. I I, when they first announced that they were making a sequel to Twister, I was like, really? That's where you're digging? Yeah. But I haven't seen that trailer. It's like, oh, okay, okay. I'll let you cook. Let's see how this goes. I'm interested. And I didn't think I'd ever be interested in a sequel to Twister. We also got another trailer for If, Imaginary Friend, yeah. which I love that they're leaning heavily into this Randall Park as John Krasinski role. <laughs> it's a great little ongoing gag that they're doing. It looks as charming now. I'm already in on this film. I think it looks like it could be a nice, charming summer blockbuster. It could be the Paddington of the summer blockbusters. Okay, I, I can see that. I can see that. Quick honorary mentions. We've got uh, another The Fall Guy one. We've got a longer version of Monkey Man, which I think looks great. But yeah, with every, every year when the superb owl plays on TV, we're always watching just for those trailers the next day. I hope that owl did well this year. Um, <laughs> he's a superb owl. <laughs> that folks that's the 200th edition of the news uh but before we go um a, a sad passing now tenuous links to being film related but we thought it was worth mentioning because we lost steve wright 
those in other parts of the world, Steve Wright might not mean anything to you, but for a, a huge portion of British listeners, he was a very recognisable personality and voice. He was a radio presenter with the BBC, initially starting out on uh, BBC Radio 1, moved to Radio 2, and has been a major part of our lives for so many, many years. Now, much loved as a radio presenter, it was a real shock to hear that he passed away at the age of 69 very suddenly, uh, a sad loss to entertainment. Tenuous cinema links? I don't know. I, I can certainly recall one of the greatest hours of radio of all time coming from Steve Wright. He had heard that in the BBC studios was Warren Beatty, who I think at that time must have been promoting Dick Tracy. And he sent out one of his assistants to see if he could coax him into the studio. Beatty came in completely unplanned, and it was brilliant. Clearly, Steve Wright and his team were blown away to have a star of such magnitude. And Beatty just went with it. And it was stunning off-the-cuff radio, mm -hmm. which in the hands of Steve Wright managed to turn it into a piece of classic. I don't know if this clip exists anywhere, if it's on, on YouTube or in any archive, but it was genius. And it was just the genius of the man himself. I remember because I was during my teenage years when Steve Wright started to really make an impact on BBC radio with his work on the breakfast show and the afternoon show. Like he started with the afternoon, moved to the breakfast slot and then eventually went back to the afternoon slots. And me and my classmates used to love listening to, well, his skits, his wild antics, the very off the cuff nature that he presented. Um, he had like ongoing skits such as Mr. Spoons, Llama Man, Llama Man, Llama Man does anything that a llama can. He can bleat, he can trot, he's got everything that a llama's got. <laughs> I can't I believe that you remember all of that. <laughs> um, and in particular, now regular listeners to the show will know that I am prone to breaking out into Arnold Schwarzenegger impressions from time to time. And I have to admit that a lot of this came from the hilarious Arnold Schwarzenegger skits that he used to do. He used to do Arnie goes to the store to buy a loaf of bread or just general things with everything going wrong. And like Arnie getting more and more upset. And then breaking out his Uzi 9mm before shooting up the place. And I picked up that Arnold Schwarzenegger mock accent from listening to Steve Wright's show. So it's never been an Arnold impression. It's always been a Steve Wright impression of Arnold Schwarzenegger. He was hilarious. He was almost anarchic at times. At a time when BBC Radio was very stoic and very set in its ways, he shook it or shook it all up. He was responsible as a result because of how popular it was with his antics that we saw a wave of presenters coming to BBC Radio and particularly Radio 1 who were never supposed to be that anarchic, who would bring their own style to it. I mean, Mark and Lard famously followed and, you know, <laughs> they were maybe a bit, bit too risky for the uh, breakfast show, as was demonstrated by their very short tenure on there when they pushed the boundaries as much as they could. Uh, but even today, a lot of the key radio disc jockeys on BBC Radio owe a lot of thanks to Steve Wright paving the way for them to just be themselves and not just have to play this music, this music, and then lead into the news. They can just bring fun, bring energy, and that tapped into my youthful nature. Steve Wright is an absolute legend of British radio. It was a sad loss. It's not film-related, 
but he clearly had a love of film with all the skits. And like you say, we're chasing down Warren Beatty and getting him into the studio. He was one of us. He'll be very, very sadly missed. Not just by fans of his show, fans of the, him as a personality, but, but I think by a, a nation. I think everyone was genuinely shocked. And that, folks, that's the 200th edition of the news. You're listening to The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. And if you haven't already subscribed, please do so by heading over to your favorite podcast platform, leaving a like, and remember to hit that subscription button. You can get in touch with us by social media channels, Film File UK. We're mostly prominent on Facebook, Twitter, Mastodon, and Blue Sky. Or you can email us podcast at filmfile.uk. Love to hear from you. Love to hear thoughts on film. And now it's time for this week's deep dive. Dive, dive, dive. Yes, it's a special deep dive, and it's an interesting approach to deep dives because this is a film where you know probably as much, if not more, than we do about its genesis. It's a film that touched many, many people's lives, changed cinema, influenced directors, influenced generation of genre fans. Because this week's deep dive is a personal one. We're going to be talking about George Lucas's 1977 film, Star Wars. Skywalker, I'm here to rescue you. Han Solo, Captain of the Millennium Falcon. Somebody has to save our skins. Let go, Luke. The Force is strong with this one. I got him! Great kid! Don't get cocky! I don't know what all this trouble is about, but I'm sure it must be your fault. How do you talk about a film that became more than a film? Became a worldwide cultural event, a phenomenon. People talked about Star Wars incessantly. If you weren't there back in the late 1970s, then you, you cannot understand the wave of excitement that it built to when it finally hit the British shores. It had already been released in the US. So there was a bit of a time lapse. Back in the day, that used to happen. There was a bit of a gap before the film was released in the UK. But in the meantime, you were getting articles in newspapers. I remember the first time I read about Star Wars, and it was a, a center spread in a Sunday newspaper with a, a few images which showed Luke and C-3PO and R2-D2 and talked about this phenomena that happened during the summer in American cinema. We would buy the comic adaptations from Marvel. We would get the novels just to gen up anything and everything which suddenly became Star Wars. It was a cultural event and it made Star Wars the highest grossing media franchise of all time. We're not going to be talking about the sequels. We're not going to be talking about the rest of the Star Wars output. We're going to be talking about from a personal level how Star Wars came into our lives from a galaxy far, far away. Andy, what was your first introduction to, to Star Wars? Well, you know, call it New Hope if you must, but 
But when I first saw it, it was Star Wars. Yes. It didn't have episode four connected to it at all. That only got added in 1980 on its reissue, just before Empire Strikes Back came out the year later. When it first came out, it was just Star Wars. And, I mean, I've mentioned this before, it's my earliest clear childhood memory. I was aged four when it came out. Back end of 1977, we were staying with relatives over the Christmas periods from Christmas to New Year. Like you say, there was all the hype through the year because it got released in the May, May the 25th, 1977 in the US. And back then you had to wait six months or more for things to make it over to these shores. So we already had the hype. We already had comic book adaptations of it. It was everywhere, posters everywhere. At the age of four, I wasn't aware of the comic books, etc. I didn't start reading comics until after this. So I wasn't completely caught up in the media of it, but I'd seen the trailers. And in particular, my mum had seen the TV spots and my mum had seen the buzz that it was causing and all the newspaper articles on this big phenomenon that was coming from the States. And my mum, as I've said before, is a huge influence on me for tasting films be it musicals, be it comedies, whatever. But she's a big sci-fi fan. I mean, she got me into Star Trek at an early age and she wanted to see this. She insisted that we go to see this because she loves a bit of sci-fi adventure. We went as a family to watch this and it's my earliest childhood memory sitting in that screen and watching this unfold in front of me. Now, my memory isn't as perfect as knowing exactly what was happening at all times. I was four years old. You're, you're <laughs> still only like, half in and out of all films. But all the key iconic moments stuck there. Right from that opening crawl, that was something, What? what's going on? I wasn't reading it. I was just like blown away by these words in space. To the Star Destroyer coming into view, laser blasts belting out. Then I've got the memories of like Tatooine, Mos Eisley Cantina. I've got the strong memory as a four-year-old going, <gasps> and being frightened by some of the inhabitants of Mos Eisley Cantina. The lightsaber swishing into view. That impacted on me at a four-year-old age. The fight between Obi-Wan and Darth Vader, the look of the Death Star, and the most vivid element is that last 15 minutes or so of the trench run attack on the Death Star. That was stuck in my mind from the age of four in almost perfected glory, so much so that I was using my building blocks at home afterwards to build a trench run to fly aircraft down because I had that whole thing in my head and I was obsessed. From that, my love of not only not only Star Wars, but my love of cinema was opened up because I was blown away at the age of four by a visual spectacle with amazing sound. And it was only coming through. I think the cinema that we saw it in was only a mono cinema. Right. I remember seeing it in, it was, it was stereo because I think it was one of the first times that I remember how good sound could be when you would hear laser blasts mm. starting in the left hand side uh, of the cinema and shooting across to the right hand side of the cinema. And uh, I, it was the first time that sound became important because a lot of the movies then had been mono. And I always remember the Dolby opener. To, to Star Wars as well. Yeah. I, I mean, for me, it, it was something that I just absorbed. I was always a genre fan, as as I've said earlier. I mean, it wasn't my introduction to cinema, but I, I was always into into sci-fi. I'd been a massive Star Trek fan, a Doctor Who fan. And this was the film that just called on me to become part of an audience. It was just perfect. It was everything I wanted in a in a space movie. 
it was the day that it opened and my school always finished an hour before the other school. So me and a friend got on the bus, we got to the cinema for a tea time release and we made it in just before the huge queues started. I mean, people were queuing around at the block. Yes, folks, people used to queue yeah. around the, bo uh, the block for a movie release and we got in and it was the now defunct Gormont Cinema, which was a beautiful screen, huge screen. And we got there and we were blown away. So much so that I think I went the next week. And I think initially in its initial run, I saw it about four or five times. I, I could I could quote the film off by heart. I already knew the story. The story had been completely spoiled because I'd read the <laughs> novelization, which came out a, almost a year before The Adventures of Luke Skywalker, which is, well, it's credited to George Lucas, was ghostwritten by Alan Dean Foster. I'd read the Marvel Comics adaptation. Every magazine suddenly appeared, uh, like Starlog or Starburst, and I would, I would get them. There were magazines that just appeared for one issue that just had Star Wars, because they know that some kid in Sheffield would go out and buy it, uh, <laughs> and that was me. And I, I, would, I would hoard everything. I would engulf every magazine that had Star Wars in it. I was completely, completely obsessed. Now, it wasn't my introduction to cinema, but what it did is it created a relationship with cinema because this film yeah. was made for me. I'm pretty certain that it wasn't the first film that I got took the cinema for because, like I've said previously, my mum used to take us every few weeks to go and see something. We've said that Disney films tended to be shown quite frequently, so I probably saw some of the old Disney classics on the big screen before them. But this is the first one that stayed with me. This is the first memory that I've got. This is the first coherent film memory and the one that made me. It's made me the geek that I am today. Because yeah. it not only like sparked that interest in sci-fi, but it sparked my love of cinema at such an early age that I wanted more. I wanted to see everything on the big screen. And I feel that if I had only watched this when it got the home release on VHS, it wouldn't have hit me in the same way. I wouldn't have sparked that love. I think the cinema is so important for getting that across. The sound... I mean, you said that like you heard it in stereo. I'm not sure. It might have been in stereo. It might have been mono, but not a lot of cinemas had converted over to stereo systems at that point in time. But everything about the sound is perfect from the sound of the special effects that were so creative and come up with from like the, the effects team from ILM, which was created purely for this film. Lucas wanted, uh, didn't he want Douglas Trumbull yes, to work on the effects? But he was, he was tied up with working with Spielberg on Close Encounters. And so he recommended his assistant. John Dykstra. Who then partnered with Lucas and they set up their own effects studio, Industrial Light and Magic, which that's one legacy of Star Wars that ILM started just as this cheap way to cobble things together and make spaceships, etc., and create sounds. And it's not only the sounds of the effects work that works, but it's that score and that score, as a kid, that was always in my head. Yeah. Whenever you picked up a stick in the woods and you and your mates started doing sword fighting, it gone from being like, yo, ah, oh, I am a knight in armor. It had turned into, you're going, zoom, zoom. You would make lightsaber noises instead of clashes of swords because it impacted on your childish imagination and you'd be humming the Star Wars theme as you're doing it. It was a perfect way to... Tell a story that's been told many times before. It's the hero's journey. It's the basic hero's yeah. journey. Lucas says as much uh, that he studied Joseph Campbell for the telling of this mm. story. A, a lot's been said about the creation of, of Star Wars, and um, you can find that elsewhere. I mean, what we do know is that 
1971, Lucas wanted to do a film adaptation of the Flash Gordon serials, but couldn't get the rights. So he began developing his own, his own space opera. He directed American Graffiti in 1973, and that put him on the road to critical acclaim. He wrote a two-page synopsis, and that went through many changes. You can read some of the earlier versions as a, a comic adaptation uh, before it became Star Wars, and a lot of it got refined into the film that we finally got. Um, at that point, there was no talk of ever being sequels or a trilogy or a further trilogy. All it was was to create this this vision that George Lucas had, or to recreate the idea of a Saturday morning uh, serial that had cliffhangers in it, uh, but it became so much more. Uh, the film was only expected to have a limited financial success. In fact, the big money was on uh, a movie starring George Peppard and Jan Michael Vincent called Damnation Alley that was expected to be the big summer sci-fi film. Uh, the movie was shot in the UK because that would help save on costs. And, and was basically cobbled together. If you've ever seen the fantastic documentary about the, the, the props of Star Wars, everything was, was cobbled together to, to create this very lived-in universe. And that's what made Star Wars different. This wasn't the gleaming future that we all thought the, the world was going to look like. This was a, a down-and-dirty existence uh, that felt very, very real, even though it was in a galaxy far, far away a long time ago but it helped make Star Wars relatable. Even though we, we know the general stories and we know the general trivia, but there's some things that have pulled out that quite a few people are maybe not aware of. The awkward cell block intercom exchange uh, with Harrison Ford like after these like, blasted the cameras. That got. Ford chose deliberately to not learn his lines for it, to give it that awkwardness, to make it feel spontaneous, and it's perfect. You've got Luke's line of, I can't see a thing in this helmet, which wasn't actually scripted. He thought that they'd stopped shooting, and he was literally just telling Harrison Ford that he can't see anything in that helmet. And that stayed in, because it, it just seemed to work. And then you've got, you know, everyone knows the Stormtrooper who bumps his You know head. what, I'd missed that for many years until somebody pointed it out. <laughs> and once you see it, you can't not see it. We know that, like, with the casting, I mean, Lucas kind of wanted a load of, new faces he didn't want any big face to take this take over the, f the film and he was reluctant to have Harrison Ford involved because he was known from American Graffiti and other projects at the time but because he'd worked with Lucas before he used Harrison Ford to test other actors for roles so he'd always be the person reading lines to them and it turned out that he went actually Harrison's perfect at this and that's why he got cast he then put in two very prominent British thespians Peter Cushing the great Peter Cushing yeah and the great Alec Guinness. And the general re reporting is that Alec Guinness hated his time on the film. He hated the film. He had disdain for it. But there's been other reports that have kind of, kind of said that that's not entirely true. Lucas has said that Guinness was more upset that his character get killed off, and that's what turned him against it. But there, there have been reports that he's remarked in interviews Guinness was an admirer of Lucas's previous movie, American Graffiti, which is why he was signed on. And the narrative compelled him to read the whole script through to the end, in spite of not liking the dialogue. And he wasn't a fan of science fiction, but he was well, he was well interested in being involved in this hero's journey story. And he remarked that he found the film staggering, a spectacle and technically brilliant, exciting, very noisy and warm hearted. The battle scenes at the end go on for five minutes too long, and some of the dialogue is excruciating, and much of it is lost in noise, but it remains a vivid experience. So I think it's important that this whole, like, reporting that Guinness hated the film needs to be taken into context that he didn't hate it. 
it wasn't his cup of tea, but he appreciates everything about it and he understands the impact it In has. an alternate universe, we could have had William Catt playing Luke, who was initially cast but jumped ship to Brandy Palmer's Carrie. Robert Englund was in the running at one point. <laughs> was he? I didn't know that. I know uh, Robbie Benson <laughs> yeah. was, Charles Martin Smith, funny enough, because I watched uh, The Untouchables the other day. Kurt Russell uh, auditioned for the role and also auditioned for the role of Han Solo. And that was also Sylvester Stallone, Christopher Walken, James Kahn, Chevy Chase, Perry King, who went on to play Han Solo in the radio play, for Princess Leia, Amy Irving, Terry Nunn, Cindy Williams, Karen Allen, and Jodie Foster, was, who turned down the role because she was under contract with Disney. Uh, Christopher Lee was originally offered the role, but declined. And that role of Grand Moff Tarkin went to Peter Cushing. And the great Toshiro Mufin, a Japanese actor known for samurai films, was thought of for the role of Obi-Wan Kenobi. Was it always planned to be a franchise? I, I think that there'll always be debate on this. And Lucas himself has kind of like muddied the waters because he originally, like after the first film was a success, it suddenly got slapped with the episode four and he said there was always an idea for three films before it. Was that we don't know because he'd initially said that this was the first part of a trilogy, but then it became there's nine films, then it shrunk back down to six films. He's always muddied it. And in recent years, in 2010, he sent uh, Damon Lindoff and Carlton Coos, the executive producers of Lost, a letter congratulating them on the show's end. And he might have been joking, but in his words, he said, don't tell anyone. But when Star Wars first came out, I didn't know where it was going either. The trick is to pretend you've planned the whole thing out in advance, throw in some father issues and references to other stories. Let's call them homages and you've got a series. And I love the fact that we will never know for definite whether Lucas did have the idea right from the start for prequels, etc. But you can't deny that as a standalone film on its own, Star Wars 1977, which will always just be Star Wars for me, is just a marvellous film. doesn't need the sequels. As a film on its own, it was an impact. It was such an impact. It was the first film ever to make over 300 million at the US box office and 500 million worldwide, which is equivalent to 2.5 billion today. So as well as launching the careers of many of the actors, Ford, uh, Hamill, this film changed cinema, changed popular culture. There were so many inspired TV shows and movies. I'm thinking of you, Battlestar Galactica, Battle Beyond the Stars, and they were the good ones, let alone the <laughs> ones that suddenly turned up, like Star Crash, for instance. But it was a, yes. an amazing time to be caught up in this whirlwind of, of one film that just changed everything. Up there with Citizen Kane, it's up there with the jazz singer as those elements in cinema where Whatever came before, this was one of those moments where everything after that changed. It influenced filmmakers, it influenced the way that cinema is marketed, uh, the way that we now have sequels, now we have big summer blockbusters. You know, uh, Lucas and Spielberg are, are responsible for changing the ways that films are marketed and the release of cinema. Uh, it was a purely, purely, it felt naive and innocent back then. Um, who, was to, who was to know that? the longing impact that cinema has had because of this one little film from George Lucas. Andy, where can we find Star Wars? Because I bet we can. I bet it's out there somewhere. You can watch Star Wars on Disney+. Plus. You can buy it on home release. Unfortunately, unless you were lucky to get it when it was on the DVD release with the double pack, you can't get the original version. It's always got to be the special editions, which have been changed. I prefer the originals. I've got the originals. But... If you just want to capture the magic, it's on Disney+. And we'll be back next week with another 
deep dive. And now it's time for this week's reviews. So let's start this week's 200th episode review with Sony in association with Marvel. Uh, the kind of the clues in that. And we're going to be talking about Madam Web. This is an emergency. That man is trying to kill you. If you want to live, you have to trust me. What is going on? I can see the future. Let's try that again. Those girls have no idea the power they can unlock. I will kill them first. Get down! Madam Webb. The film stars Dakota Johnson as Cassie Webb, who's just an ordinary New York City ambulance driver back in the early 2000s. Then one day, after a near-death experience, she suddenly finds that she has dormant psychic powers where she can glimpse the future. So Madam Webb is based, as most Sony characters are, on a character that you probably would never have known if you, unless you've really, really read the Spider-Man comics. She's not a major comic book star. Most people would have no idea who Madam Webb is. And that kind of helps this film because it has tenuous links to the Spider-Man legacy. But you can almost, I think, unlike Venom, for instance, watch it as a standalone film. Is it any good? I think is the, the question that you are <laughs> going to be asking. And I think that's where I bring you in, Andy. Because it's not the worst film, to be honest, to come out of the Sony-Marvel collaboration. No, um, it, it's not Morbius bad, let's be honest here. But you'll, you'll know from how we've talked about it on the show previously when the trailers came out and we were a bit like, ah, mm, I'm not digging it, this isn't looking good. But I went in with very low expectations and within the first 10 minutes it had delivered already on those low expectations. And so I did something strange. I sat there to deliberately try to look for the positives in here. It would be quite easy for me to sit here and rip this film to shreds. But what is the point of that? Because we weren't expecting much from it anyway. The character of Madam Web, like you said, is a very little known thing. And it gives them a bit of option to like play with it in a different way. And they do, because this isn't the Madam Web of the early comics. This isn't the old woman mutant precog. This is a young, more dynamic character who's still got that precog abilities. And it seems that this version of Madam Web is more inspired by the Julia Carpenter modern incarnation after the old Madam Web passed on her powers to her. She even wears the Julia Carpenter uh, maroon coat and black top. So it's just like, well, why, did you, why didn't you just make it the Julia Carpenter? Why make it Cassandra Webb? But I, I sat to watch the positives and I did find some good things in here. I did find some. First of all, let's talk about the key casting of Dakota Johnson. She does the very best she can with not a lot. The script gives her not a great deal to work with, but every time that Johnson is on screen, she has charm and holds the film together. She's got a wry sense of humor. Um, she plays it pitch perfectly. And, and I just felt sorry for her because she's, she's doing the very, very best she can with this material uh, and comes out okay one of the things that doesn't drag it down is is her performance there are many other reasons that you can sort of knock this film but it, i think it's, it's johnson does enough to keep you engaged and if this had been a better film i think it would have been a nice breakthrough role to her that proved that she can do genre pieces as well she's tried her best in this film but the end result is a mess I, and it's a shame because i've never really i've never really seen any anything from dakota johnson that's made me sit up and go oh She's yeah, got potential. I, I, but this is the film that bizarrely has made me go, 
oh, wow, I'd love her to get some better material to work with because what she's managed to do with such tre- terrible material is make you care for her character. And in particular, her screen time that she spends very fleetingly with Adam Scott. That's where she really shines. I mean, Adam Scott's always great in anything he turns up in. And when he pops up in this film, any moment he's on screen alongside Dakota Johnson, the pair just, they just fit together with perfect synergy. I liked the early 2000s setting. Yes. I like it shifting it back in time so that it's not encumbered by other events in the Marvel Sony films because it's way before them. It gives it a chance to breathe. I also like the dynamic camera work. Some of the action in here, yes, the the CGI isn't great, but the action is filmed and shot in quite a dynamic way. There's moments where the Ezekiel character, who I'll get to him in a minute. Yes, because we need to spend time on the Ezekiel character. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because we'll probably spend more time in it than the film does. The Ezekiel character will flip from like the ground to the ceiling or over to a wall and the camera will flip with him and then follow him. And there's a marvellous shot when he's running alongside the outside of a building and the camera's on on its side as well, following him along. And I love that. It really lent into like this spider agility kind of nature of the action. And it was just like, wow, why is this camera work in this mess of a film? Why is this film not much better than what it could have been? Well, the plotting's all over the place. Yeah. Um, apparently, Peru is a, dr- a day's drive away from New York City. Which yeah, you I can, don't know how that happens. I, I didn't know if you know, Andy, but you can you can get to Peru in a day. Uh, you can find the exact <laughs> spot where your mother perished, just down to a few notebooks and some sketches, and 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 there you are for a sequence in the yeah. film, which is absolutely ridiculous. Which not only slows down the entire film to give you a ton of exposition but hey we shot the opening scenes in peru let's go back there because we don't want to waste any money i i think both you and i kind of looked at each other and went what i also picked up on the fact that all the photos she has of her mother seem to be just still shots from the opening scenes yes. of her mother in the peruvian jungle which makes you go who took these photos when she was the photographer <laughs> Everything was just cheap. And that's the biggest problem is that it felt like a cheap TV movie. It did. It's it got a huge like a pilot, didn't it? post-production changes within it. It's been edited to absolute destruction. And story-wise, it doesn't know what it is. And it brings in one of the most interesting comics in recent era of Spider-Man and then completely misuses him right from the offset. And that is the character of Ezekiel. Let's let's just feel very sorry for Tahar Rahim, who plays Ezekiel, and he might be saddled with probably the worst role of his career and probably everybody else's career. The dialogue is somehow more stilted and so full of exposition that any actor worth their salt just would find difficulty delivering. I had no idea what the motivation was behind this character. He has a vision, so let's go out and kill the people who um, who are eventually going to kill him. Uh, so it becomes a bit of a, an odd Terminator sort of inspired mess of a yeah. film. The character of Ezekiel in the comics was a very interesting character because he was a mentor. He was someone who was obsessed with preserving the spider totem. Whole mythology was brought in where anyone with spider abilities was part of the same connected totem of the spider deity. And Ezekiel 
was trying to protect them all from like inheritors who were going around killing them to drain their life's energy and steal their energy for themselves. Yeah, he tried to protect Peter Parker. Peter Parker, being the good hero that he, he is, refused to be locked up and protected because it had put people around him at risk. And he's always been the hero. And that's the only thing that sparked Ezekiel to turn on Peter to try, basically try to kill him to steal the totem energy for himself so he could protect it. But then Ezekiel sacrifices himself in the end to save Peter Parker. In this film, right from the offset, Ezekiel's a bad guy. Yeah, and he, he goes, he's kind of the bad guy where he goes, being evil is just is, is kind of awesome. I love being evil. Yeah. If you're going to do that, why call this character Ezekiel? Why even try to pretend that it's drawn from the character in the comics? And you could say, well, maybe it's just someone with the same name. No, because there's key moments in the comics where Ezekiel was talking to Spider-Man while up on a wall with a business suit on, but no shoes on. They seem to think that's his shtick, and he walks around the city streets of New York with no shoes on at all times. No, it was one panel from a comic. You've misinterpreted everything about that run of comics. The use of the character of Ezekiel in this is awful. It's a two-dimensional approach to a character which had so much more depth in the comic format. And I'm not a purist. I do expect changes when things get made over to film. But this is not change of a character. This is a complete bait and switch. And on the subject of bait and switch, anyone who saw the trailers and thought, going into Madam Web, we're going to see loads of super superhero characters in costume. No, you've pretty much seen it all in the trailer. It's a bait and switch because they're set in the future that the film never gets to. So, so let's be honest, Madam Web isn't the worst out of the Sony Marvel films. The, no. That really just still goes to, to Mobius. But it has the occasional good idea, which is sadly just poorly executed. There, there's potential for a, a decent, if not a film, then even perhaps a, a, a TV series. As we said, Dakota Johnson comes out of it very, very well. Sony have problems with their live-action Marvel films. Can they carry on with the next film being Craven? I, I don't see the future like Madam Web, but I think it's all going to pretty much fall apart. And I don't expect to see any more adventures in the Madam Web world. This film is just a testament to everything that Sony is doing wrong with the properties that it could really do so much more right with. Okay, so I am going to look into the future and I'm going to see that you're going to review the next two films. So I'm going to start off with other cinema release this week, and that's Bob Marley, One Love. One drop, man. All right. He was an icon. You know you're a superstar. I'm a superstar. Who became a target. On February 14th, discover the comeback. I like struggle. That is your power. Of a legend. Marley, one love. You like that one? Another week, another biopic, and this time, director Rinaldo Marcus Green, who saw success with King Richard a few years back, shines a spotlight on the life of the iconic reggae singer and songwriter Bob Marley. Beginning in 1976, when Jamaica was the height of political and social upheaval, it covers the period of time that saw an attempt on Marley's life due to his political stance, his fleeing his home country and settling in England whilst his career hit the stratosphere before returning home to perform his iconic One Love Peace protest concert. A turbulent time for the singer with not only career issues and political issues affecting him, but also personal family matters brought about by the external pressures around him. There's a lot of detail covered within the film, which makes it a bit of a shame that in the end, it's just okay. And perhaps overall, a tad underwhelmingly safe as a biopic. 
The issue is certainly not with the cast, who are all admirable in their parts, especially Kingsley Benadire in the central role of Marley, who leans heavily into the depiction of the iconic singer with movements, style, look, and the Jamaican patois delivered all to perfection. Indeed, so effective is his delivery of lines that I did find myself for the first half hour struggling sometimes to completely understand the dialogue being spoken, but my ears swiftly attuned to it, and I did get the general vibe, so I never felt lost, and instead was just simply impressed with the authenticity. Opposite Benadia, the ever-excellent Lashana Lynch plays Marley's wife Rita with absolute strength, bringing any scenes when they are both present up a few notches. The issue's not with the visual style or the sound of the film. The music of Marley is obviously heavily utilised, and combined with the visuals of a Jamaica that's struggling with itself, it all works to put Marley's songwriting into a perfect context for the times that he was living through. But this is a film where all the individual factors are right, interesting story, great cast, marvellous soundtrack, impactful visuals, but it just doesn't really come together to tell us anything. It just feels far too safe. It never feels like it's exploring the character or setting with any depth, simply opting for a surface level look at the singer's rise to prominence. One Love is certainly guaranteed to set toes tapping, and it isn't a wasted experience. But as a biopic, it just feels a tad slight, and it won't leave much of a lasting impression afterwards. After that, we've got... The Eternal Memory, documentary that you can catch as part of the Storyville season on BBC iPlayer. This documentary from Malte Alberti is a heartbreaking look at the impact of Alzheimer's with a film that looks at the daily routine that Chilean reporter Augusto Gongora and actress Paulita Orita, who've been together for two decades, go through as Augusto is slowly eroding away through suffering from Alzheimer's. Eight years prior to the filming, Augusto, who as a journalist was dedicated to ensuring that the atrocities of the Pinochet regime in Chile were never forgotten was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. At the turn of this decade, the documentary crew began capturing the daily life of Augusto and Pauli, as his condition had deteriorated to the point at which he fails to recognise his wife at some times, himself at other times in a mirror, or simply gets confused as to where he is, and he's got an obsession with protecting his book collection that he believes someone is taking away from him. They are taking his memories away. There are lighter moments scattered within as the humour and joy that the couple bonded over occasionally comes back and Augusto begins to demonstrate some of his youthful vigour. But these moments, as anyone who's ever dealt with people who've suffered from Alzheimer's will know, are fleeting. This is a heartbreaking documentary about a condition that strips people down to barely a shell of who they were. And in particular with this film, we get to see how the disease impacts on those closest to the sufferer. Through Pauli's morning ritual of reminding Augusto of who she is, the good moments when memories flood back and he realises his eternal love for her, and then the moments when he's lost and confused, not recognising her and not recognising his own reflection in a mirror or a reflection on a door, or the house that they built together. This is a raw and very distressing at times look at a condition and how it strains those who love the sufferer. Thoroughly recommended. It's currently available on BBC iPlayer as part of their Storyville season. So that's it for this week's reviews. We'll have more reviews next week. Andy, what's coming out for all us geeks over the next week? So at cinemas, 
We've got Shoshana. We've got Demon Slayer to the Hashira training is what the subtitle is of it. For older geeks who want to revisit Monty Python's Quest for the Holy Grail. And why shouldn't you? Because we are the knights who say need. It's got a reissue this week for a, what I think it's their 48th and a half anniversary. Of course. <laughs> and um, So Python. One film that I'm looking forward to next week, which I'm hoping to get to see to review, is Wicked Little Letters. Now TV and Sky. Asteroid City lands this week. Knights of the Zodiac lands on there and Red Right Hand. Over on Netflix, we've mentioned it previously on the show, the TV adaptation of Avatar The Last Airbender. Season one lands this week. Mia Culpa, a legal drama that's written, directed and produced by Tyler Perry. So that's going to be trash. And on... Maybe you are like Madam Webb and you can see the future. <laughs> no, I could just see Tyler Perry's name attached to something. <laughs> and from midnight on the 25th of this month, if you're interested in watching the SAG Awards... They are streaming live on Netflix. And Apple TV Plus, a whole new show, starts Constellation Season 1, which sounds interesting. Numi Rapace is an astronaut who returns to Earth after a disaster in space, only to discover parts of her life are missing. Sounds intriguing. And that, folks, that brings us pretty much to the end of our 200th edition. Thank you so much. And I think as we go into our neat things, I think we're pretty much going to agree on what our neat thing is. Don't we, Andy? Yes. We wouldn't have got to 200 episodes were it not for this neat thing. No, it's not my unique recording studio of a desktop PC. <laughs> it's not Lee's beautiful microphone that he's got in front of him. Neither is our sense of humour. <laughs> it's definitely not our sense of humour. No, it's every one of you guys out there, every one of you people who listen, either a casual listener picking up the odd episodes when we're covering a deep dive of a film that you particularly enjoy, or the ones who listen to us every week. It's you. Without you guys out there feeding back to us with your answers to the question of the week, feeding back to us your love of, love of film, catching us in public and ambushing us by making me feel embarrassed when you say, oh, I listen to your show, it's really good. Oh, thanks. I'm very nervous now. Um, if it wasn't for you guys, we'd probably still do this, but we'd be talking to a void and we wouldn't get the engagement and wouldn't get the love and satisfaction that we get when we know we've hit the hearts of you. So you guys, they're definitely my neat thing. Are they your neat thing, Lee? It, it is. I, I, I totally agree. I think, you know, when we get responses to the social challenge, which was a way of, of talking directly to you guys, and you, you've responded wonderfully to to that, to uh, meeting you uh, in the flesh and, and you saying nice things about us. I, I, a bit like Andy, I get all shy and are slightly embarrassed. And the fact that we've we've just done it and we know who we're talking to we know who our audience is yes we would love to build the show up but we've got you guys you're our foundation for this and, and we can't thank you enough um you make it brilliant you are the reason that we do this as much as we we love doing it for ourselves it's great that we that we know we've got a, an audience out there who every week spend an hour and a half with us and become part of our film file family thank you to you you are our neat thing uh, and that's it for this week's episode. We'll be back with every will in the world next week, unless something happens that's unforeseen. Andy, it's been a heck of a run. We started this little old podcast, so we just do we just do something to en talk about films and enjoy, and it's turned into something much, much more. Um, it's always a pleasure, sir. Yes, it's gr it's grown into a life of its own. This show, it's, yeah, it certainly <laughs> sometimes has. this show has taken over my life, but it's it's a takeover that I'm more than happy with. Like you say, always a pleasure. Our, our weekly chats on here, uh, a highlight of my week. Uh, editing it, not so much a highlight, but the weekly chats are definitely a highlight. 
So we'll be back again next week. Hokey religions and ancient weapons are no match for a good blaster at your sidekick.